chapter 9, the very end of it. Um, we're going to look at a lot of verses, so either relax and listen or get your fingers ready to switch around a lot because we'll be in a lot of different passages today. Let me pray before we get going here. Father, we just thank you so much for your word and uh, just the wonderful prophet, uh, Amos, that stood up against all the wickedness and sin of his generation, Lord, and bravely spoke the truth. And today we look at wonderful promises. So we just thank you for the way you ended this book. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So we're at the very end here. The last five verses of Amos. They are, these last five verses are part of the uh, final vision of chapter 9. But as I mentioned last time, they are, the last five verses are nothing like the rest of the book. I mean, they're completely different than everything that has come before. Because Amos has been a book of judgment. And every prophecy in this book has focused on sin and judgment. Chapter 1 into chapter 2 focused on the judgment of Israel's neighbors. Just kind of taking a little circle around Israel and identifying all the neighbors. Even the kingdom of Judah. And nobody was spared as God evaluated each of these kingdoms. All of these nations came up way, came, came up way short of being pleasing to the Lord. And then God starts speaking to Israel, and they have failed completely in their covenant responsibilities in every way. So Amos chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. Chapter 4, verse 2, God speaks, remember, to the elite women of uh, Israel. He calls them cows of Bashan. But in verse 2, it says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you, when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Then five times in chapter 4, God says, you have not returned to me. You will not return to me. Chapter 5, verse 18, the Lord speaks to their religious longing. Because they, they were looking forward to the day of the Lord when God would come and make everything right in the world. And he said in verse 18, alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light because they were deluded that they were going to be blessed in that day and they were wrong. What sense does it make to hope for the day of righteousness and justice when you personally are unjust and unrighteous? It doesn't make any sense and he's pointing that out. Chapter, verse, chapter 5 verse 21, the Lord tells them what he thinks of their religion. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord says of the elites, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawler's banqueting will pass away. Chapter 7, verse 9, the high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam, the king, with the sword. Chapter 8, verse 10, I will turn your festivals into mourning, all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins, the baldness on every head, and I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. And all of that leads up to the last verse we looked at last time, chapter 9, verse 10. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say, the calamity will not overtake or confront us. That's where we ended. Nine chapters where there's literally no good news. 
just nothing positive. No commendations, no rewards, no blessing is given at all until now. Until we get to verse 11. Suddenly, the future in Amos is incredibly bright. I mean, stunningly glorious, wonderful. Their future is described in terms that have not existed on this world since, since Eden, when Adam and Eve were first created. I don't think there are any prophets to Israel or Judah who failed to prophesy about a glorious future for the earth even though their message for the current generation was usually one of great judgments. So how can that be? How can that be? What future is there for Israel having failed so dismally? And on what basis can God make such incredible promises to them? Well, the word promises is actually the operative word when we're talking about what we're talking about today. God makes promises. And no matter how humans can blow it, he fulfills his promises. That's really important to remember. Promises are the key aspect of what are called covenants in the Bible. God makes covenants with people. And covenants drive the biblical story. And they have done that for 2,000 years. Everything that happens in the Bible, all of that history you read about in the Bible, is in some way directly connected to covenants that are made in Scripture. That's what makes the Bible so unique. There's nothing like it. There's no book like it. There's no religion like it where over a long period of time, God makes specific promises and fulfills those promises. Many of them have already been fulfilled in history, but that leads us to put our trust in the future promises that God makes. So it's God's relationship with a very specific people by covenant that is stretched out over centuries. That's what the Bible is. So what are covenants? Well, they're, they're binding agreements between an between humans, it would be like a legal contract, you know, but between God and humans, it's so much more than that because he's making promises that he's going to keep. Now, there are some covenants that are conditional, but all the major ones we're going to talk about today are unconditional covenants. It's something that God is going to make sure happens no matter what. And as you look at the covenants in the Bible, you see that what they are as they begin in the early parts of Scripture and move forward throughout Scripture, they're unfolding the plan of redemption that God has for humanity. That's what the covenants are all about, this plan of redemption that God has. So the covenants follow the human story from the beginning all the way to the future in eternity. So the story of planet Earth is a human story, right? It's our story. That's what the Bible is all about. We are special. In fact, without human beings, there wouldn't be any stories, right? Because there really, you know, there really aren't any chipmunk stories in, or duck stories. Um, only human beings can appreciate a story or write a story or think about a story. As far as we know, there is only life on this planet, as far as we know, on Earth. And we are the only creatures on the Earth with all these incredible gifts that separate us from chipmunks and all the other creatures of the world. We're totally unique. Rational discourse belongs to us and only us in this world. Speech, the creative arts, morality, spirituality, they all belong only to us in this material realm that we live in. So we are truly a wonder among all the creatures. Why are we like that? Well, right at the very beginning, the Bible says we're made in God's image. So we share these wonderful qualities that he has in a very finite way when he has these qualities in the infinite, his infinite being. So we are wonderful creatures. 
and we have wonderful gifts and we misuse these gifts in horrible, horrible ways. That's the problem of the world. There is very deep corruption in the human heart. But strangely, we deeply corrupted humans still long for and want to see in some way a moral and just world. We long for that. We wish things are, were not as they actually are. We see that human wickedness pulls down every lofty ideal and every human effort to make a moral and just world that humanity destroys those efforts or tears them down or corrupts them. We see that time after time after time. There is, well in every place where men dwell, in every time and in every culture, men destroy good things. It's really interesting as well that every major civilization, at least all the ones I can think of, all the big ones, they have some legends or stories of a past golden age. The world was once really wonderful and it isn't anymore. A happy age of peace and security and abundance. The Greeks actually came up with that word, the golden age. They're, they had a golden age and their legends, a, a time of limitless peace and prosperity and harmony among the gods and man and nature. The world was like an eternal spring in which men li lived in ease and comfort and getting along together. People lived a really long time and even if you lived 500 years, you didn't look old or decrepit or anything like that. That was their golden age. They, they thought that was the way the world was when it started. The Bible doesn't have a golden age. The Bible has two people in a garden, cared for by God and responsible to God. It was a perfect garden. There was harmony and beauty and joy there, but just two people. So the Bible doesn't have a golden age in the sense of this wondrous age when all of humanity lived in this great thing. Two people blew it until now. I mean, their, the, their act continues on in us today. The Bible also doesn't even have a golden age for the Jewish people. Most of these golden age stories that cultures have, it's about their tribe, right? Their group of people. We used to be this back in the day. That's what all those, you know what the, the Bible has? The, what's the beginning of the Bible for the, the Jewish people? One guy, guy named Abraham, regular guy, a herdsman. What was special about him? God made a covenant with him. That's the beginning of the Jewish people. It wasn't some golden era. It was one man and God made a covenant with that man. Genesis chapter 12. Everything that happens in the Bible after Genesis chapter 12 is, is being driven. The whole story of the Bible is being driven by the covenant made with that one man, Abraham. Here's the covenant. Genesis 12 verse 1. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I, God speaking here, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now that's a covenant. Wow. So the most important words in there are nation, land, all the families of the earth. 
That's what's coming. And I've said it many times here, but I just want to reaffirm again. The Abrahamic covenant in chapter 12, and then it's expanded on in chapter 15. There's more detail about it there. That drives the story of the whole Bible. Everything else is directly related to that covenant. In Genesis 22:18, God actually tells him, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So it's some descendant from him where that's going to happen. Abraham never lived to see a golden age. He, he died without anything more than flocks and sheep and some, you know, one, one special son. But God reaffirmed the promises to that son, Isaac, and his son, Jacob, and Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, especially Judah, especially Judah. There was a special promise to Judah in Genesis 49, 10. The scepter, who holds scepters? Kings. Very good. You're very wise people. <laughs> the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So after a long time, after that promise was made, God chose a royal line through a man named David. And guess what happened with David? God made a covenant with David. That's right. Long after Abraham's time. And this is what he told David. 2 Samuel 7:16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, God never made a promise like that to any other king. It'll be a forever kingdom, something completely unheard of in our ever-changing world. So once David's line begins, once that kingly line starts going forward, the prophets start telling us more and more about one man, the Messiah, a son of David, who will reign forever and bless all the families of the earth. The prophet Isaiah, just a few years after Amos, he came right after Amos, he describes the Messiah in language that just blows your Hebrew socks off. If they wore them, I don't think they did, but if they did, they would have been off. Laying there on the mound like Charlie Brown. <laughs> Isaiah 9, 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So he will be God, the eternal one. He will reign forever. And we'll find out he will reign on earth for a thousand years. A thousand years, where we, that's where we get the term millennial. You know, the thousand year reign of Christ. We talk about the millennial age. And that will be a golden age. Peace and harmony and abundance and long life will be the norm on the earth. And creation will be renewed by divine power. The same power that made the universe at the beginning. And the Messiah will be the source of this renewal as he rules on David's throne. 
So the covenants with Abraham and David, they are exactly why the very first words in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, are the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's why it's written that way. The millennial reign of Christ on earth is a, is a doctrine that's addressed directly in scripture probably more than any other single doctrine. The kingdom of God under the Messiah is the subject of vast portions of scripture, all through scripture. Messiah's kingdom answers all the misery caused by the fall of man regarding this planet that we live on. This good world was meant for men to enjoy as they gave their hearts to God and their minds to God to be stewards of his creation. That was the purpose of the world. And of course man fell and chose evil. And God cursed the earth. So now there is all this sadness and misery mixed in with all these joys and wonders and pleasures. Now as I get old, I'm finally getting used to it. I'm finally getting used to the fact that human beings work very hard to spoil everything. I mean, I've really noticed it. We corrupt every institution. We corrupt every moral advance. It's always two steps forward and three steps back. Every advance in civilization is followed by decline and madness. And I mean that, madness. And we live, we're living it because human beings are spoilers. And we have been since the fall of man. And all of those who want to build utopian worlds without God, you know, there's always people like that, trying to create a new humanity or a just world order, they always end up being people without any mercy who are willing to kill as many people as they can to achieve their dreams. That's just how it works in a world without God, a world of unbelief. But the Messiah, He's coming to set up a kingdom of true righteousness and justice in this world, on earth. So, we're supposed to look at Amos, I know. So, the point of this all, saying all of that is the last five lines of Amos, the last five verses, are, are packed with images and concepts of this coming messianic age. It's just real short. So Isaiah's got chapters about it, you know, and and Amos just can't finish without at least saying something about it. So he says five, there's five verses and five ideas right there about that time when, when Messiah comes. So first the king, Amos starts with guess who? David. That shouldn't really surprise us. So verse 11, and that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So look at those verbs there. Raise up, wall up, raise up, rebuild. But it calls, he calls it the booth of David. Now that's just interesting because usually it's the house of David or something like that. But a booth, that's the same word they use for like a little thatched temporary structure like the Feast of Booths, right? They put up these little temporary structures or if you're out, if you're sent out to a field to watch the vineyards to make sure the crows don't eat everything or that kind of stuff, you would build a little temporary little shelter over yourself, a little thatch thing, you know, just to get the sun off your head. And, and that's, the that's the word that's used there. It's very unusual to call it a booth of David. So why does he use that word? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Well, David was a very imperfect man for one thing. His personal sins damaged the kingdom and its future and it all fell apart after his son Solomon. But I think it's a lot more about the Messiah. When Jesus was born, a true son of David, 
there was no Davidic king on the throne. In fact, Israel didn't even have a throne that was visible, you know. I mean, there was a line coming from David, and Jesus was in that line, but foreigners were ruling Israel. The Romans were ruling Israel. An Idumean king was sitting on the throne in Galilee. Jesus was a carpenter, not a king. He was a working man, an unimportant man in the eyes of the world. These foreigners were ruling over Israel. So Jesus' life, from that perspective, looked like a pretty flimsy booth, right? I mean, uh, something very hollow and simple and peasant-like. But Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Messiah. And he came that way to identify with us who are lowly and with sinners and to pay for our sins, to purchase our salvation. That's why he came. But he's going to come again. And when he comes again, he's going to rule over all people, his people and all the earth. As Isaiah, as Isaiah said, the increase of his government will have no end. Righteousness will prevail on the earth. Justice will prevail on the earth. He will have an eternal, enduring kingdom of righteousness without end, as Isaiah said. So I think that's what he's talking about there. So anyway, it, the Davidic king will rise. Then the second of our five words is in verse 12, nations. Remember in the original covenant made with Abraham, we talked about that. In you or in your seed, all the, all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? Here's verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Now, Edom was a very bitter enemy of Israel east of the Jordan River, and it was really tragic because they were actually cousins in a sense. You know, those were the descendants of Esau. They were um, Jacob's brother. But for many generations, they were bitter enemies of Israel. And the only time Israel ever controlled Edom was actually under King David. And while many nations are to be blessed by God under the Messiah, the land that was Edom will be held by Israel. That's what it's saying here. And the Edomites don't even exist as a people anymore. I mean, there could be somebody that's a descendant from them, but we wouldn't know who they were. There's no people group uh, based on them anymore. They don't exist. They're lost to history. Now, some believe that Amos is using Edom as kind of a representative of the kingdoms of the world, but I think it's actually rather specific there. But it is true. I mean, the Jews have always been uniquely hated in the world. They are today still hated by the goyim, the peoples of the world. That's actually the word that's used here, nations, the goy, you know, the goyim. You ever hear a Jewish person talk about the goy? That's the word used here in the second line, all the nations, all the goyim who are called by his name. God's plan was always, has always been a world at peace under the Messiah. That's his plan. Human beings cannot achieve it. They always fail. So God says right here he's going to do it. He will embrace many nations as his. He'll call them by name. The same way he called Israel by name. He's going to rule over all these different nations. It's really interesting that in the book of Acts, at the great Jerusalem council, remember? Now, we were in the book of Acts. If you've been around for a year or so, you should remember this, but kind of the center of the book is Acts chapter 15, the great Jerusalem council, where they're debating and are going to decide, can Gentiles be in the church on the same basis as Jews without keeping the law? 
Is it just by faith or do they have to become Jewish to become Christians? And James actually quotes this passage in Amos in his speech there at that council to say Gentiles should be included based on these words here. It actually reads a little bit differently if you read Acts 15 because he quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint, which a first century Greek translation. And that doesn't even mention Edom, the, the Greek translation. Just the Gentiles who are called by his name. So that's what he's focusing on there. And the emphasis is the same. The Gentile nations will be the people of God. And it's already starting as the gospel is going out into the Gentile world. That's why he's talking about that there. So to say that Gentile nations are called by God's name as well as Israel shows how God has always intended, like he told Abraham 2000 BC, that he was going to bless all the nations of the world through him and his descendant. It's hard for me not to think of the vision of the prophet Daniel, which was given in Babylon, far from home, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, this famous vision that he had. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming. Hmm, who used that phrase about himself? And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him, the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That is the golden age of the Messiah. And it includes all peoples and all nations who exist when he comes. Probably the most beautiful description of the millennial kingdom is found in Micah. Let me just read that for you too. So I told you you'd be bouncing around a lot. Micah chapter 4, verse 4. Israel will be the capital of the world with Christ as the king. It says, It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Who's going to say that? Many nations will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And from Zion will go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. The earth will be like God intended it. And all the covenant promises made to Abraham and Israel and David and Judah are all going to be fulfilled. Okay, so that's the king and the nations. Our third word is the earth. Verse 13 in Amos chapter 9. So verse 13 is all about the superabundant natural world of the Messiah. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grape, him who sows the seed. When the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. It's such an incredible image here. I think it's supposed to be sort of fun the way it's described. I don't know if it's literal or not. Kind of an eye-opening thing. The land is so fertile a guy will be plowing right behind the person that's picking the harvest. Come on, pick faster. I'm ready to plow the next thing. It's not like seasonal, you know. 
We wait a few months, then we'll go through the plowing season. It's like they're right behind them. And, and look at the, the wine press here, the treading of grapes, um, him who sows the, sows the seed. So the treader's like, I'm right behind you. Right, yeah, plant that seed. There's the grapes. Okay, let's put them in the bat. Here we go. And then, oh, there's more. And there's, it's just unending stuff like that. that it's, so it's a fun way of describing a super abundant earth the way it was designed to be. Come on, guys. Start picking that. We're ready to lay the next crop. The plow's right behind you. Do you remember how God cursed the earth when Adam and Eve sinned? Do you remember that? Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. That's going to be over. It's not going to be toil like that. It's not going to go bad. You won't have crop failure. All that will change when Messiah comes. Romans 8, 21, it says, The creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. As wonderful as we will be in the kingdom of God, nature itself will be wonderful. And that's when you have nature at harmony, like we see in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. It's all over the Bible, this coming kingdom. But let me read you Isaiah 11:6. 6. This is the famous passage where it says, The wolf will dwell with the lamb. My little lamb friend. <laughs> the leopard will lie down with the young goat. Even here in Acton, our goats get eaten by mountain lions. But that won't happen. You'll find a mountain lion playing with your goat out in the backyard. <laughs> the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox, and the nursing child will play in the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be renewed. Just try to imagine such a world, such a wonderful world. Okay, we talked about the king. We talked about the nations and the earth. Verse 14 of Isaiah, uh, Amos, I'm sorry, Amos chapter 9, verse 14. The people of Israel. I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. Just peace and security, which Israel has rarely ever known. And certainly not at this level. Now, remember back in verse 8, God called Israel the sinful kingdom. Here he calls them what? My people. My people Israel. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5 speaks of Messiah in that day. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. There's so many prophecies about the safety and security of Israel under the Messiah. It's really fantastic. God will fulfill all of his promises to Israel by his grace. He will give them his spirit and they will serve him as they should have done all these generations, all these long centuries. So that's the fourth section. The final word, verse 15, is land. The very land promised to Abraham in detail in Amos, I mean in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 12 mentions it. Chapter 15 actually outlines that land. Amos 9, 15. 
I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them. Boy, they've been rooted out of that land so many times, but they won't be again. Simple, short, one verse promise there to end the book. I'll let the prophet Ezekiel expand on Amos' words there. Again, Amos is just giving these little brief shots about all these wonderful truths. Ezekiel 39, 25. Thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land. And I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer for I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So folks, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God, will one day rule this world. It's going to happen. He will fulfill the promises made to Abraham and David and the entire Israelite nation. The curse will be lifted. There will be harmony, abundance, peace, security, a permanent secure home for Israel. History will have its proper end. Mankind will fulfill his original purpose. Life on earth will be like it was supposed to be. Is that pie in the sky stuff? No, it's pie on the earth. <laughs> but it's promises from God. The same God that brought forth the Messiah already. So we already have the knowledge that it will come because God did send his Messiah to bear our sins and there's nobody to compare with Jesus. And so because of him, we can have absolute confidence that all these things will come true. So Amos just can't, can't leave us with judgment. He has to tell us about the good news. And the good news is always found in the Messiah, in the son of David. He's the bringer and maker of good news. And he saves, he saves our souls by dying for us and he will save the world by coming in power to rule it in righteousness and justice. All and he'll do that for a thousand years, the Bible says. That, what happens at the end of that? He, he takes the whole thing and he gives it up to the Father. And that's when heaven and earth really merge together. That's how the book of Revelation ends. You know, there never was a golden age. So the first two people, they went on their own way, like we talked about, away from God. And all of history is this grand lesson in the tragic effects of sin, of walking away from God. If you ever needed to, to know well, what would happen if we walked away from God? Well, just look at the history of humanity. You've got it. Angels have been watching this go on for thousands of years. What humans do. There will never be a golden, there never was a golden age in the past, but there will be a golden age to come. So the book of Revelation says it'll last a thousand years. Regarding that thousand years in which Christ's reign on earth and righteousness, the Bible says, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And then in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 15, when all things are subjected to him, Christ, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. 
So even at the end of that glorious millennial reign, there's something even more wonderful beyond that. We call it the eternal state. You read Revelation, it's like the marriage of heaven and earth. There is no hope for a future that is run by lost human beings. No hope. There is a living hope based on the promises of God which he has kept all throughout history and will most certainly keep when Jesus comes back. Maybe it'll be soon. I'm not a prophet, but it sure feels that way. <laughs> I don't know. The way things are spinning out of control. But sooner or later, the lesson will be over. The Messiah will come and he'll set up his kingdom on the earth. Jesus will come to right the world's wrongs and to establish just, justice and righteousness until the end of time. And we'll see it. We'll see it. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the Lord of history. All the history of the world you are guiding to fulfill your great promises. Men are wicked, but you are good. Men rebel and sin. You seek to save sinners. Men spoil creation, but you're going to renew it. Men are unjust, but you will bring perfect justice. So Lord, come soon. May your kingdom come, we pray. In the name of our perfect Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen.